Oh, wow, what a joy it is to be here tonight. I thought I was going to speak to a small group Bible study and that we'd sit in a little circle and just kind of stare at each other and share prayer requests. And I walk into the building and it's just filled to overflowing. So I'm just so thankful to the Lord for this opportunity to be able to be with you and to be able to minister the Word of God to you. And I already know really something about you because I just heard you sing, holy, 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 and I felt like I was lifted up to the heights of heaven myself. Thank you, brother, for playing the guitar and the lady that was on the, the keyboard and then the drums, and it just all worked with your voices as we sang to the Lord, holy, holy, holy. Could not have been a more appropriate um, hymn for us to sing, considering what we will be looking at uh, this evening. So thank you for being here. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Isaiah, the prince of prophets, the evangelical prophet, the major prophet. There are 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament, and in every one of your Bibles, Isaiah is first. And there's a reason for that, because he is the major prophet in the Old Testament. He always comes first. And so we're turning to really not an obscure section of the Old Testament or even of the entire Bible. We're turning to a very prominent and important passage of Scripture Isaiah chapter 6, and tonight we're going to be speaking on the holiness of God. I want to begin by reading the passage that we will be looking at, Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. 
It was A.W. Tozier who wrote years ago in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. The most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think of God. Tell me what you think about God, and I will tell you about your life. I will tell you about your priorities. I will tell you about the choices that you make. I will tell you how you worship God. I will tell you how you carry out evangelism. I will tell you how you love your neighbor. As your knowledge of God goes, so goes everything in your life. High thoughts of God towering, transcendent thoughts of God lead to towering, transcendent worship of God and high and holy living. Low thoughts of God lead to shallow worship and stagnant prayers and superficial living. It is your knowledge of God that is the determinative factor in your life and is driving everything. Eternal life is to know God. The most important issue before every one of us and every church is who is God? Can you think of a more important subject or topic than God? R.C. Sproul, a, a mentor of mine, was someone that I have served with, was once asked this question as Ligonier Ministries began to first began to expand and develop. A consultant was brought in to help them formulate a strategy for ministry, and Dr. Sproul was asked this question, what is the greatest need of people in the world? And Dr. Sproul immediately answered, they need to know who God is. He was then asked, what is the greatest need of people in the church? He immediately responded with the same answer, people in the church need to know who God is. We need to examine tonight what is most important about God. The angels in heaven tonight are not crying out, love, love, love. Though God possesses holy love, flawless love, perfect love. The angels in heaven tonight are not crying out, truth, truth, truth. Though God is holy truth and infallible truth. The angels tonight are crying out what you and I need to be crying out tonight. Holy, holy, holy. It is the only attribute of God that is elevated to the superlative degree. Towering over all that God is, is His holiness. As you think of God in your Christian life, 
you must first and foremost immediately go to the holiness of God or you have not gone to the apex of who God is. And so tonight I want to walk through this passage with you and I want us, as it were, to be caught up with Isaiah into the palaces of glory and into the throne room of heaven And as it were, to approach the throne of God, I want us to see what Isaiah saw, and I want us to hear what Isaiah heard, and I want it to to reverberate in our hearts and in our souls tonight, so that we will say with Isaiah, here am I, send me. So as we look at this passage tonight, several headings I want to set before you as we walk through this extraordinary encounter that Isaiah the prophet had with the living God. I want you to note first the crisis. That's at the beginning of verse 1. This scene begins with a, a national crisis of epistotic proportions. It was a crisis that brought the entire nation of of Israel to a screeching halt and to a a standstill. We read at the beginning of verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death. King Uzziah was one of the most successful kings over Israel. He assumed the throne of Israel at age 16. He was the boy king. And he sat on the throne of Israel for the next 52 years, for over half of a century. And as Isaiah, as uh, Uzziah sat on the throne, Israel prospered in an unparalleled fashion. Commerce exploded. Agriculture flourished. The military was strengthened. Jerusalem was fortified. These were glory days for Israel. And as long as Uzziah is on the throne, everything is on the uptick. But at the end of Uzziah's life, he became drunk with his own pride, with his own success. And he tried to barge into the holy place where only a priest was allowed to go. And they tried to stop Uzziah from crossing the line and going to where he was forbidden to go in the temple. And he barged ahead, and as soon as he entered into the holy place, God struck him immediately with leprosy, and God took him down. And Isaiah, excuse me, Uzziah, soon died, and it brought the nation to a screeching halt. He is no longer on the throne, and Israel is without a king. I remember when, where I was when President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I was only a few miles away from where he was assassinated. I was a young boy. And I remember when the announcement came over the loudspeaker in my schoolroom, there was a deafening silence as everyone was shocked 
that the president is dead. I was only even less distance away when Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, where I grew up. And I remember the shockwaves that it sent through every neighborhood in our city and every city in the United States. It was devastating. That is something of what has happened in the nation. Israel has King Uzziah has died, and it is in such a time of national crisis that it brings the nation to its knees to begin to seek for answers and to finally look up to God. I remember in 9-11, which I was reminded was the anniversary was yesterday, September the 11th, when those planes came flying into downtown New York City and, and took down the Twin Towers and then the other plane was aimed at the Pentagon, the very nerve center of the United States military operation. When we had the Wednesday night prayer meeting, normally there would be a couple hundred, 300 people in the sanctuary where I pastored. There was over 2,500 people jammed into the sanctuary as people now who would never come to prayer meeting, who would never even be regular in church attendance, now they are packed in like sardines into the church. There's barely any breathing room. Looking to God. Adversity has that effect in our life. More people come to faith in Christ in the midst of adversity than they do in prosperity. It's when we're knocked to our knees and we realize that we're no longer in control of the situation. We begin to look beyond ourselves and we look to God. And you may be in such a time in, in your life where you are facing a crisis with the death of a spouse or, or a loved one or a financial loss or the loss of a job or the loss of a spouse or a child then you can relate to Isaiah as he begins to seek God in the temple. I want you to see, second, not only the crisis, but the confrontation. Because Isaiah is about to experience God and encounter God in a way that he has never yet encountered God as he is driven even deeper into the knowledge of God. To this point, it is, as, it is as if Isaiah has only put one little finger into the Atlantic Ocean of the knowledge of God. There is so much more of God to know and to experience in the mind and in the heart. And now Isaiah is about to be plunged, as it were, into the deep end of the pool of the knowledge of God. And so we read in verse 1 in the year of King Uzziah's death, here it is, I saw the Lord. He saw the Lord in a way that he has never seen the Lord 
before. None of us here tonight have arrived in the fullness of the knowledge of God because God is an infinite ocean of grace and mercy and truth that none of us can get our arms around God. And Isaiah now is about to have his understanding of who God is stretched in a way that he has never understood God before. Oh, he has known that God is holy. We know that from chapter 1. But now he is about to see that it's not just that God is holy, but that God is holy, holy, holy. He says, I saw the Lord. The word for Lord here in the Hebrew is Adonai, which means the sovereign one, the real king over Israel. Uzziah has has died, but now he sees the king of kings and the Lord of, of lords, and he sees the Lord sitting on a throne. As he comes into the palace of glory and into the presence of God, he is not struck with who's there or who's not there among loved ones. He, he's not struck with gates of, of, of pearl or streets of gold or a river of life or a fountain of life or a tree of life. It's what will strike you the first moment you enter into the portals of heaven. It's exactly what struck the apostle John when a door was open in heaven and he was on the island of Patmos and the voice says, come up here, and he is caught up into heaven and he immediately sees the same reality that Isaiah sees here. He is dominated by the vision of the reality of God upon his throne. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Israel's throne is vacant. Heaven's throne is occupied. God is seated. God is enthroned. God is presiding over the affairs of this world. God is ruling. God is reigning. And here in the nation Israel, it is chaos. In heaven, there is no panic. There is no calamity. It is God presiding over the affairs of nations and over kings, and everything is going according to God's predetermined plan. Uzziah's number of days had been numbered before he was even born. And he would not exceed the number of those days. What Isaiah sees is breathtaking. It's jaw-dropping. It's heart-pounding. And he sees the Lord lofty and exalted, raised up and lifted above all creation at the very apex of the universe is a throne and God is seated upon the throne and he is towering over all earthly thrones. He is the most high God. 
Do you have this vision of God? Do you have this knowledge of God? Or is your God too small? And then he adds at the end of verse 1 with the train of his robe filling the temple. What a vision this is. The measure of the greatness of ancient kings was the length of their robe. The greater the expanse of their kingdom would be revealed and the greater the length of the robe. And if you preside over a small kingdom, you would have a small robe. But if you have conquered multiple nations and multiple empires and you preside over a vast domain, then you would have a a long robe as you would approach the throne. What we see here leaves Isaiah breathless. He sees the train of his robe filling the entire temple. There's no room for any other sovereign in the celestial throne room. It is God and God alone. Psalm 103, verse 19, God has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. No one voted Him in. No one can vote Him out. He has established Himself as the sovereign one over all was working all things according to his will, who is raising up kings and lowering others, who is presiding as judge over all the judges of the earth. This is an extraordinary scene. When you think of God, you should think of this scene. Third, I want you to see the choir. That's beginning in verse 2, the choir. Isaiah, Isaiah sees more than God. He beholds those who are around the throne of God. We read in verse 2, seraphim stood above him. Who are the seraphim? This is a special order of angelic beings who are given the task of day and night, day and night, bursting forth and singing praises to God. The word seraphim means the burning ones. And they are on fire for God. They are burning with devotion and burning with energy to serve the Lord. And they stood above Him such that their worship of God is is cascading down like a, like a waterfall and immersing God upon His throne with glorious praises, surrounded by praises from, from every side, from these seraphim, and each having six wings in verse 2. With two, He covered His face. Utterly 
unable to be in the immediate presence of God and to look full into the face of God. It would have been easier for them to have stood on the surface of the sun and looked directly into the burning fire of the sun than to be in the presence of God and look upon him in his holiness. They covered their face, unable to even look directly upon God. And with two, he covered his feet, signifying he is unworthy, unworthy, unworthy to enter into the presence of God that the creation has no basis to enter into the presence of the Creator. This is like Moses when he saw the burning bush. He covered his feet as he stood in the presence of God. There's no casual worship that's going on here. It would be entirely inappropriate in heaven for there to be kicked back casual worship. And with two, he flew. Meaning, they are ready to fly out at a moment's notice. They are like hummingbirds just flapping their wings, ready for their assignment. And the moment God gives them and dispatches them, they fly out of the palace of heaven and come descending down into this world to carry out the commission that has been entrusted to them by God. There is a real sense that you and I must be like these cherubim, on fire for God with burning zeal of devotion for God, ready to do God's will and God's work at a moment's notice and aware that our only worthiness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's what Isaiah saw in verse 2. This is what he heard in verse 3. And one, one of the seraphim, cried out to another, another of the seraphim, and the word called out is a Hebrew word, karah, which means to cry out with a loud voice, to shout, to roar, to roar like a lion. There's no mumbled worship here. They are calling out and shouting out to one another. Some are on this side of the throne of God. Others are on this side of the throne of God. And on one side of the throne of God, they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then the response, the whole earth is full of His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then they're on the other side of heaven, returning volley, as it were. The whole earth is full of His glory. And they do this day and night, day and night, throughout all eternity future without end. The throne room filled with praises for God. 
Now please note, holy, holy, holy. They're not needlessly repeating. They're not stuttering. To say the same word three times in a row elevates that word to the superlative degree. And what they are saying is God is holy, holier, holiest. It's not just that God's holy. He's holier than any one of his creation. He is the holiest being in the entire galaxies. That the holiness of God succinctly summarizes all that God is. Holiness is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the sum and the substance of God. What does the word holy mean? It's a Hebrew word, kadosh. And it means to cut an object in two. Such that the object that is cut, there are two halves that are now separated and set apart from the other. That God is separated from his created order. And this is true on three levels. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It is true positionally, positional holiness. That is to say that God is a cut above his creation. He's not on our level and we're not on his level. God is transcendent. He is towering above us in majesty and kingly glory and regal royalness. He vastly exceeds us. He is over and above and beyond us. His positional holiness. And then second, His moral holiness. That God is sinless and that God is flawless, that God is morally pure and without blemish, that God is infinitely and absolutely perfect. He is perfect in all of his thoughts. He is perfect in all of his motives. He is perfect in all of his words. He is perfect in all of his choices. He is perfect in his will. Everything that God is and everything that God does is perfect. It's holy. He is perfect in his judgments. He is perfect in his salvation. God never needs a redo. God never needs a second chance to get it right. He gets it perfect the first time in everything. 
His choices are perfect when your choices are not perfect. His word is perfect when your word is not perfect. And the third element of the holiness of God, we've said positional holiness, he's cut above us. His moral holiness, he's sinless, flawless. Third is his judicial holiness. That we would have a comprehensive, comprehensive understanding of the holiness of God. Because of God's judicial holiness, God loves righteousness and he rewards righteousness and God hates unrighteousness and he punishes unrighteousness. That God gives perfect grace as he chooses to give perfect grace. And he unleashes wrath upon sinners in their sin. God can never reward sin or punish righteousness. God would be marked by inequity and unfairness. Everything that God does is judicially holy. In fact, everything about God is holy. His being is holy. His essence is holy. His character is holy. His attributes are holy. His Son is holy. His Spirit is holy. His Word is holy. His will is holy. His actions are holy. His ways are holy. His salvation is holy. His judgments are holy. His city, Jerusalem, is the holy city. The promised land is the holy land. The temple is the holy temple. And inside the holy temple is the holy place, and inside the holy place is the holy of holies. All of this to convey to us the superlative nature of his holiness. When you think of God, immediately go to his holiness. Every attribute of God is holy. His power is holy power. His righteousness is holy righteousness. His grace is holy grace. His mercy is holy mercy. His wrath is holy wrath. Holiness is at the epicenter of who God is. And what God is. Is this how you understand God? Is this how you know God? Anything less would be demeaning of who God is because He's jealous for His own name and for His own holiness. He is a guardian of His own holiness. And the revelation of God's holiness is his glory. 
That is why at the end of verse 3 it says, The whole earth is full of His glory. And glory is the outshining radiance of the holiness of God. It is the beaming forth of the effulgent light of the holiness of God shining into the darkness of this world. The holiness of God is shining brighter than 10,000 suns in the sky above. And as it is beaming out of His inner essence, it is His glory. It is His glory that fills the whole earth. It is infinite holiness. Please note forth the conviction. In verse 4, because the throne room of heaven begins to shake as if there is an earthquake. Verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds, the very meaning, the very foundations of the, the temple in which God dwells in the heavenly Zion, the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out as One of the seraphims calls out the response of even the physical dimensions and parts of heaven begins to shake. In fact, the floor begins to move and the pillars begin to shake and the thresholds sway under under this declaration of the holiness of God. In fact, everything in heaven is convulsing. And then it says, while the temple was filling with smoke, and there's smoke spewing into the throne room of God, and it is the manifestation of God as thick as a fog. It's glory cloud filling the throne of heaven. I want to say it again. This is anything but a casual worship service. This is a scene that strikes the fear of God and reverence for God and awe of God. There's nothing chummy here with God. And in verse 5, Isaiah begins to shake more than the foundations of heaven. Then I said, Whoa, whoa, woe is me, for I am ruined, judged am I, unfit. Am I? Cursed am I to even be here. Isaiah becomes painfully aware of his own sin. When you're away from the holiness of God, you look pretty good. When you compare yourself to others... You look good when you compare yourself to the holiness 
of God, you do not look good. And Isaiah responds, whoa, it's me. It's a desperate cry of grief and despair. And Isaiah knows from earlier verses in the Pentateuch that no one can see God and live. And Isaiah assumes, my life is over. I've just seen God. No one can see God in their mortal flesh like you and I are in our mortal flesh right now. No one can look upon the perfect holiness of God and His glory and live. You'll be struck dead. At the very least, you'd be like John on the island of Patmos and just fall as a dead man at the feet of the glorified Christ. Just go unconscious. Woe is me. For I'm ruined. I'm done. Why? He tells us why. Verse 5. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah now becomes unusually aware of his foul mouth. Using God's name in vain. If Isaiah went to a Christian counselor today, the counselor would say, Isaiah, you're being too hard on yourself. Where's your self-esteem? Isaiah would say to the Christian counselor, you've never seen the holiness of God. This is the only rightful response there is. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And Isaiah is saying, I'm all darkness that has filled me The counselor would say, Isaiah, what do you you mean you are a man of unclean lips? You are the prophet of prophets. You are the greatest preacher in the nation. When you speak, God is speaking through you. Isaiah says, no, I'm a man of unclean lips because my lips are not always speaking what God is saying. And sometimes these words originate in my flesh and they originate within me. And Isaiah now sees himself in the blazing light of the holiness of God. And the closer you draw to the light, the more you see your own imperfections. The more you grow as a Christian, and the closer you draw to the light of the holiness of God, the more you are aware of your own sinfulness. And then he says, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He now sees the nation in a totally different light. Previous, it is as though the nation is doing great. The the nation is prosperous. And Isaiah says, one view of the holiness of God, and I see that we are a nation living on a dunghill. We're not better than I thought. We're worse than I thought. In fact, earlier in Isaiah chapter 1 and and verse 4, just for a brief moment, Isaiah 1 verse 4, 
alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. This is how the book of Isaiah begins. Offspring of evildoers. All we can do is produce children from the womb of their mother who are evildoers. That's the best we can bring to this nation. Sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Verse 5, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. It's the doctrine of total depravity. From the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, every inch and every ounce has been, has been polluted by original sin from Adam. And Isaiah suddenly realizes we can't compare ourselves to the Babylonians or to the Assyrians or to the Egyptians and feel smug about ourselves that we are better than these heathen, pagan, godless nations. No, he now compares himself to the holiness of God and says, our politicians lie, our financiers lie, and as it were today, the media lies, and everyone is lying through their teeth. This is the state of the union, the state of the nation. It's the state of the United States. It is the state of Northern Ireland. It is the state of Ireland. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The problem is us. And at the end of verse 5, for my eyes. Here's why. Here's why the conviction. For my eyes have seen the king. Not King Uzziah. Not the first minister. Not the president of the United States. My eyes have seen the king. It's a totally different standard. This conviction of sin is the inevitable result of unholiness looking upon holiness. It is the clash between impurity and purity. This is the trauma in the heart of the prince of prophets, Isaiah. You, me, I'm not okay. You're not okay. We need grace. We need mercy. We need forgiveness. We need divine intervention. We need the gift that only God can give. We can't legislate our way out of this. We can't refinance our way out of this. We need God 
No political solution will ever be the remedy for a spiritual problem. It requires a spiritual solution, a divine solution to a spiritual problem. And in the United States, the issue is not Republicans versus Democrats. It's not liberals versus conservatives. The issue is good and evil that transcends political parties, that transcends economic solutions and school board, little school board solutions. This is the reoccurring conviction that must strike the nation. Fifth, I want you to see the cleansing. In verse 6, because this scene does not end in verse 5. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. God will have the last word. And in verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and these burning coals in this vision of Isaiah represents the purging power of the grace of God to cleanse human pollution of heart and life. There is only one remedy. There is only one solution to the human dilemma. And it is this burning coal of the saving grace and the cleansing mercy of of God that is in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Early in Isaiah 1, verse 18, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. You could have 30 years, 40 years of living in heathen idolatry and pagan uh, iniquity, and in a moment God would forgive. In a moment God would wipe the slate clean. If you would only humble yourself and repent of your sin and confess your sin to God, God would be so quick to forgive and to restore The hesitation is not with God. The hesitation is with the stubbornness of man. And so in verse 7, he touched my mouth with it. The burning coal pressed to the lips of Isaiah the prophet. Can you imagine the excruciating pain of this severe mercy of God? Repentance is always painful. It's gut-wrenching. It's never casual. Verse 8, 
When I used to play football, I remember one particular game I was trying to tackle a runner and he hit, my, hit me hard and it just bloodied my nose. And I came out of the game for a play and coach just kind of almost like taped it up and put me back in. And after the game was over, my father, who was a, a, a doctor in medical school, said, I've got, I've got to take you to the hospital. So he, he, they took me to the emergency room and behind those curtains, a physician came in with like a, an, an, a, a, an iron that was glowing orange on the end. He said, I'm going to have to cauterize, cauterize the inside of your nose. And my dad said, here, they'll give you some Novocaine. And they tried to numb up my nose. And I said, Dad, I can still feel my nose. And my dad was so frugal, he was not going to pay for a second shot of, <laughs> of Novocaine. And he took that long branding iron and stuck it inside my nose. And I screamed. And then my, my nose was like on fire and smoke began to come out of my nostrils. That's something of Isaiah's experience here. Burning coals pressed to his lips because that was the point of entrance of sin out of his life point of exit from a heart. He touched my mouth with it, verse 7, and said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. It was that quick. It was that immediate. It could be that quick for you tonight. You could walk into this mil- building with layers of unconfessed sin in your life and mountains of unrepented sin. And if you would just say to God, Woe is me, for I am ruined, God would immediately remove your iniquity. And you would walk out of this room completely different than you walked into this room. God's grace, God's mercy, it's an ocean, it's galaxies of forgiveness and grace if we would but humble ourselves. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Well, finally, verse 8, we come to the end of this extraordinary encounter with God. The sixth thing I set before you is the commissioning. For the first time in this vision, God now speaks. To this point, 
God has only been seen. To this point, the seraphim have only been heard. To this point, Isaiah has only been heard. But now, God speaks. And now, Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Singular, I. And who, who will go for us? Plural. Here is just a hint at the triunity of God. One God, three persons. We're not told the multiplicity of the persons, just that it's more than one. And the question, whom shall I send and who will go for us, is not a diagnostic question. It is a rhetorical question, which in reality is a statement. Who among all the inhabitants of the earth, Isaiah, is ready to be used? And Isaiah answers, I believe, very humbly. Here am I. Please note, not here I am, as if indicating geographical location. Here am I, indicating personal availability. God, here am I. You could use me. Send me. And Isaiah is now fit to be used as an instrument in the hand of the Master. God desires to use you. But God uses pure vessels, clean vessels, vessels that have confessed their sin, vessels that have repented, vessels that have humbled themselves beneath the mighty hand of God, vessels that have been purged and cleansed and forgiven. Vessels that say, here am I, send me. Where are you tonight in your Christian walk with the Lord? Where are you in your spiritual life? I ask you simple questions. Are you a pure instrument in the hand of the Lord? Is there an area of conviction of sin? Have you seen the holiness of God? Have you trembled like Isaiah in the foundations of heaven? Do you see the holiness of God is the very essence of all that God is? Even his sovereignty is holy sovereignty. He never abuses or misuses his right to rule.
It is always used flawlessly and perfectly. Everything that God has ever done in your life has been perfect. His wisdom is holy wisdom. His timing is holy timing. Would you say to God tonight, send me. Send me back to my school. Send me back to my office. Send me back to my family. Send me back to my neighborhood. Send me across the street. Maybe send me around the world to another country. If you will say, send me, God will fill in the blanks. But you go first. You surrender your life and say, send me. Then God will give the direction. And maybe you've never first come to Christ by faith. Do you see who you will stand before on the last day? Holy God, who is light, who will expose every sin in your life. Do you see without a Savior, without the righteousness of the Savior, He will execute perfect judgment upon you? You have no hope apart from Christ. And if you have never called upon the name of the Lord, I would urge you to do so this very moment before you leave this room. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says, Him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. If you will come to Christ in repentance and faith and come on His terms, He will receive you. He's the friend of sinners. He will gather you in to His flock. And He will wash you and cleanse you and forgive you of all of your iniquity. And one day, when you come to the end of life's journey, he will take you to the Father's house and bring you before the throne of God and stand in the presence of his holiness, covered in the righteousness of Christ, and stand faultless before the Father. That is the power of the cross to present you perfect in his sight. If you've never called upon the name of Christ, I would urge you to do so this very moment. And you may never have this opportunity like this again the rest of your life. Boast not yourself of tomorrow, for you know not what a day may bring forth. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Let us pray. Father, our hearts do tremble and our soul does shake. And rightly so, as we have been transported out of this world and into the inner throne room of your immediate presence 
And God, we have seen what you are like. We have heard what you are like. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who washes away all of our sins and presents us before you with full acceptance. We pray this with gratitude in Christ's name. Amen.